This is Guns and Butter. I would quote Julius Caesar, who said, "You can't, you cannot build an empire with a republic." <laughs> so, yes, this is the end of the republic. It's the end of the republic, and uh, and. The reason why you can't build an empire with a republic is that within a republic there's certain freedom of expression uh, and dissent, and where citizens can actually say no, we we disagree with our leaders and so on and so forth. Uh, the police state is being implemented with a view to reinforcing the military agenda. It also shuns any kind of protest movement by radical groups which may disagree with with the economic uh, agenda, which has led to the impoverishment of millions of people across America, okay, and which is also in itself a consequence of the of the war. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosadovsky. Today's show: Iran, all-out war or economic conquest. Michel Chosadovsky is professor of economics at the University of Ottawa and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research webpage at www.globalresearch.ca publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues focusing on social, economic, strategic, geopolitical, and environmental processes. Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Today we discuss his most recent article, Iran, War or Privatization, All-Out War or Economic Conquest. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on, on your program. Your recent article, Iran, War or Privatization, begins by pointing out that the Iranian government is engaged in a far-reaching, free-market-style privatization program that Tehran will allow foreign capital to purchase unlimited shares of state-run enterprises, which are in the process of being sold off. I think a lot of people will be surprised to learn of this. Well, certainly, because uh, Iran is presented as um, as a country which opposes the free market, uh, has a different perspective to that uh, upheld by the United States and, and its allies with regard to uh, economic policy, and essentially. Uh, also upholding the idea of a strong state and public sector. But in fact, uh, even going back to the late 90s, uh, under the government of Mohamed Khatami, there was a privatization program where state assets would be transferred into private hands. Now, what is distinct uh, in the current initiative is the fact that um, the Tehran government has accepted to transfer a large share of these state enterprises into foreign hands. And in fact, what they're saying is that entire state enterprises can 
pass under the control of, of uh, foreigners as long as in any particular industry or sector foreign ownership does not exceed 35%. Now, it doesn't mean that, that 35% is the, is the limit on each uh, individual state enterprise. It's the limit for the entire sector. And that's a lot. You know, that's a lot. It means that one, more than one-third of the industry could be controlled by foreigners, and some of the state enterprises could be totally taken over by, by foreign capital. But we know in any event that, that foreign capital may decide simply to own a portion so that they can control, they can have a controlling share in these enterprises. Uh, so that it is a major turnaround. Now, then the question we ask ourselves, if um, the Tehran government, uh, under the helm of President uh, Ahmadinejad, is actually committed to free market reforms and, uh, and neoliberalism and so on, why on earth would we need to invade them? Okay, Just go in, buy up their state enterprises at rock-bottom prices, uh, because that's normally what happens, particularly when it's in consultation with the IMF and the World Bank, and and then take over the country, uh, gain a controlling share of, of key industries, and then you don't need to go in and bomb them. And it's a much uh, more effective and cheaper way to to uh, to operate. So that is the question at the outset. Why on earth would we need to go in and bomb the country uh, and invade them if they uh, have um, implemented procedures which allow foreign capital to, quote, purchase unlimited shares of state-run enterprises which are in the process of being sold off, unquote. That is from the original report from the Iranian uh, media. Well, is Iran hurting for money? Why are they doing this? Well, that's another important question because usually when you privatize if you look at countries like uh, Brazil, Argentina, uh, you know, uh, developing countries, Egypt, uh, very often these countries are heavily indebted to foreign creditors. They're under the surveillance of the IMF. They have to implement uh, sweeping macroeconomic reforms. And their creditors will say to them, well, you have to privatize not only because private enterprise is more efficient, as they say, but uh, you need the cash to reimburse your creditors because you have a balance of payments crisis and so on. So that the usual context where, where you have mass privatization is uh, when the country is heavily indebted to foreign creditors, where conditionalities are imposed, and uh, and so that the creditors go in and pick up the pieces. It's the case of countries like Indonesia or Thailand in the wake of the, let's say, the Asian crisis. Uh, and it's certainly the case of many countries in, in Latin America. And also, after all, the price of crude oil is at an all-time high. So, so you have to wonder, well, what is the reaction of the IMF and the World Bank to Iran's privatiz- well, privatization I, scheme? I, I should say that Iran doesn't need to privatize. Okay? So they don't, they don't need the money. The state doesn't need the money. Okay? So they're not doing it for the obvious reasons that they're strapped for cash. But they're members of the, of the IMF and the World Bank. They're members of the Breton Woods institutions. 
They are implementing these reforms in consultation with the IMF and the World Bank. The IMF has actually said, well, you're doing a good job uh, uh, in meeting uh, the issues of developing the private sector. And, and in fact, uh, the IMF has stated that Tehran is committed to a continued transition towards a viable and efficient market economy and that they're contributing to developing investor confidence. Now, one wonders how they can contribute to investor confidence if they're going to be bombed. But in any event, the question I ask in this uh, article is, this is a profit-driven agenda, and if the country is prepared to hand over its assets on the silver platter to foreign investors, well, why on earth do you need to bomb them or to threaten them. And at first sight, I thought there was something contradictory and that, uh, that in fact, uh, there was a big mistake on the part of the Bush administration. They didn't know what they were doing, etc., etc. But in fact, on closer examination, it seems that the military agenda is not on hold in any regards. The war is not on hold. Uh, they still intend to bomb Iran. And they are, in fact, now uh, implementing, the Bush administration is implementing through the U.S. Congress um, procedures which will, in effect, annul uh, Iran's privatization program. And, and then you wonder, why would they do that? Okay, why would they be opposed to a privatization program? Um, in Congress, at this very moment, is a resolution. It's in the House of Representatives. It's called HCON. 362, and this resolution actually urges the president in the strongest terms to immediately use existing uh, executive authority to impose sanctions on the Central Bank of Iran, international banks which continue to conduct financial transactions with Iranian banks, energy companies that uh, have invested in uh, the Iranian petroleum industry, etc., etc. And what this resolution does is to freeze trade and monetary transactions with the Islamic Republic. And that means you can't initiate a privatization program with foreigners involved if you freeze the transactions. So the the very basis of a privatization program is that there's a flow of, of financial resources between Iran and, and foreign countries and vice versa, and that, in, that foreign investors are allowed to come in and participate in the, in the bidding process because these are put on the auction block in the Tehran Stock Exchange. And then when you start to look at this more carefully, then you see, well, in fact, not only... Uh, is, uh, is the U.S. Congress implementing uh, a resolution. It's a non-binding resolution, but it certainly gives a mandate to the, to the executive, which virtually isolates Iran economically. Um, it's tantamount to a declaration of war, because when you, when you have this kind of, of sanction on a country, the, the country can't function. I, I should mention that the U.S. administration already has a sanctions regime which applies to U.S. companies and U.S. citizens. 
But this particular resolution, non-binding resolution, is really addressed to everybody else. It's addressed to all the foreign companies, the European companies, the Japanese, uh, of course, the Russians and the Chinese. And, and then you start to see how all, all these pieces start fitting together, because in effect, uh, U.S. citizens and U.S. companies theoretically are not allowed to trade with, with Iran. They're not allowed to invest. They're, they're not allowed to invest in the oil industry although there are many companies which actually are involved in a proxy way through, through uh, subsidiaries and so on. But legally, the U.S. companies are not allowed to trade or to do business in Iran. So that the, the non-binding resolution in the U.S. Congress is essentially intended to block other investors from doing business in Iran, namely European, French, German, British, as well as, of course, the Japanese, the Russians, the Chinese, and a number of other countries, India, Malaysia, have important uh, trading relations with Iran. And then it occurs to me, well, if this is the purpose of the, of the resolution, uh, it is essentially in fact, quite consistent with the military agenda because the resolution itself, I'm talking about the congressional resolution, essentially what it says is, is we don't want anybody else, including the Brits, the French, the Germans, the Japs, the Chinese, and the Russians to do business with Iran. And why is that? Because we, we plan to bomb the country and then uh, establish our own rules whereby... Uh, Iranian uh, state assets would be transferred into uh, the hands of a handful of American and British corporations. In other words, I interpret these measures essentially as a mechanism which would isolate Iran from its um, European, Japanese, and Asian trading partners, including Russia, China, of course, and would isolate Iran from the world market, uh, it would be tantamount to um, essentially to a declaration of war. It would constitute a, a means to put pressure on other countries to block trade. It might be followed by the, the blocking of ships in the, in, the, in the Persian Gulf, in the Straits of Hormuz, and so on and so forth. So that in effect, what this indicates to me is the fact that the United States is not interested in a free market privatization program. Uh, what it wants to do is to shunt this program through a worldwide uh, economic sanctions regime, which would, if, if it's implemented, it would paralyze trade uh, with Iran and it would also paralyze investment and monetary flows with Iran. And, and essentially, the recipients of this resolution are uh, Iran's trading partners, not only Russia and China, but a number of European countries. And so that, in effect, the resolution serves to undermine the economic interests of several of America's allies. And then you say, well, this is, this is really weird. Why would they do that? 
I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Iran, All-Out War or Economic Conquest. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The Iranian privatization scheme favors countries that have long-standing trade and investment relations with the Islamic Republic, and that would, of course, not include the U.S., so that this resolution we've been talking about, 362, it's aimed at U.S. competitors, even the Europeans. This is a whole economic thing. The business about they might build a bomb or they're helping the Iraqi resistance, this is not what this is about, is it? No, it's not about that. I mean, the, the Iranian nuclear threat is a fabrication. And that is known because the national intelligence estimate, well, we've known it for quite some time, but I think what is revealing is that the national intelligence estimate of December 2007 uh, has actually confirmed that Iran abandoned its nuclear weapons program in 2003, and that they do not have a nuclear weapons program. They have a civilian nuclear program, like a lot of other countries. So if you look at this document, uh, it's the National Intelligence Estimate of the U.S. administration. Essentially what it says is that Iran is not a nuclear threat and does not have nuclear weapons capabilities. And consequently, if you follow the logic of that statement, which emanates from U.S. intelligence, then you should say, well, in that case, why on earth are we continuing to accuse Iran of having nuclear weapons when, when our own intelligence services says they don't have the capabilities of doing it, and they abandoned their nuclear weapons program back in 2003? And it, it's interesting because the intelligence estimate actually dates its findings to September 2003 and says, based on evidence that we collected in 2003, which we're now releasing, because previously it was most probably was classified, uh, we say Iran is not a threat in terms of, uh, of a nuclear weapons program. It does not have a nuclear weapons program. Now, Interestingly, more or less at the time when that evidence was acknowledged in classified reports by U.S. intelligence, made available to decision makers in the White House, the State Department, and so on, uh, and most probably congressional committees as well, at that very moment, uh, the Bush administration implemented its first stage of war planning, which was called Tyrant at, at the time. It was, it was launched in July of 2003. Now, Tyrant stands for, so it's an interesting acronym. It has nothing to do with tyrant or tyranny. It stands for Theater Iran Near Term. Now, Theater Iran Near Term means theater war, Iran Near Term. It's self-explanatory. It was a set of scenarios as to how you would attack Iran in terms of its various targets, both military and civilian, and so on and so forth. Targets were identified. In fact, today, there are several scenarios of possible attacks on Iran, 
we're at a much more advanced uh, phase in, in war planning. But what I'm suggesting is at the very moment when the Bush administration uh, had confirmation from its own intelligence services that Iran had abandoned its nuclear weapons program, they decided to launch theater Iran near term and to initiate extensive military planning with a view to bombing Iran. And those have been ongoing for the last five years, okay? More or less the last five years. We're talking about July 2003. Now we're July 2008. And, um, and it is only recently, I would say in the last year and a half, that, that the media has actually even addressed in a meaningful way the, the possibility that the U.S. administration might attack Iran. And now what's happening is that uh, they have acknowledged, yes, these war plans are very serious, they're there, uh, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, the anti-war movement has absolutely no opinion on the matter. They don't realize the seriousness of these war plans, the fact that if they are carried out, if any of these scenarios is carried out, we're into a World War Three scenario. The war would extend from the eastern Mediterranean right to the Persian Gulf. The economic dislocations would be far-reaching. The Straits of Hormuz most probably would be closed. Well, 20% or more of the world's oil production comes from that part of the world. It would um, push the oil price to much higher levels on the international uh, market and it would have absolutely devastating consequences both in the Middle East and beyond. And then the question is, what would Russia and China do? Would they stand by and simply let this country be bombed? They have important and significant military cooperation agreements with Iran. Uh, as I said, Iran has the capabilities of defending itself. Uh, so that is the scenario. The scenario of a possible war on Iran remains, uh, and it remains because, essentially because the Bush administration is talking about it, and there are people in the Bush administration who want to carry it out. And what they've also been doing, they're trying to weed out opposition within U.S. armed forces through uh, firing and hiring of commanding uh, officers. Uh, I mean, the most recent was the appointment of General Petraeus as uh, commander of Central Command. Central Command is a very key military command because it really is from Central Command that, that attacks on Iran would be launched, or at least would be coordinated. And so you have to have a general who is really very compliant with the essentially the position expressed by the Bush administration and mainly the vice president. And they fired Admiral Fallon, who yes. was the head of CENTCOM, because he essentially said, well, that there wasn't going to be an, uh, an attack on Iran on his watch. That's correct. Now, Admiral Fallon is an interesting individual because actually he was appointed last September to head Central Command. And uh, in other words, September 2007, he was appointed because he was viewed by the the Bush administration as a very compliant supporter of the global war on terrorism. 
And uh, Admiral Fallon was seen as somebody they could trust. And, and what happened with, with, with Admiral Fallon was that um, uh, as a military man, he understood that an action against Iran would be sheer folly. I mean, it would be uh, completely crazy to envisage that type of action so that they decided to get rid of him. There's been so many changes in uh, key positions. Uh, now, again, last September, October, there's a new um, command of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is Admiral Mullen, Michael Mullen. Now, Admiral Michael Mullen was also considered as a safe choice by the the leading neocons in the Bush administration, particularly Cheney and the Secretary of Defense Gates. And so they appointed Michael Mullen to head the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And now Michael Mullen is making noises saying, uh, I think that this would be a big mistake to to run a war on, on Iran because we simply wouldn't be able to manage it. So you've got a number of people in the Bush administration who have reservations, not because they don't believe in war. Okay, These guys are professional military men. They've taken an oath to serve the administration. They obey orders and so on. But they obviously have disagreements uh, as to the feasibility of this type of military operation and view quite correctly that this would be an absolute disaster. And then you have people like uh, General Petraeus. She's willing to carry it out. And also, we always focus, of course, on the Bush administration and their desire to go to war with Iran. But it seems like Congress is pretty gung-ho as well. There was an article on July 10th, uh, lawmakers blast Bush for rise in Iran exports. Well, it seems like Congress is, is trying to push Bush even further to the right. Well, that is, I think that is implied by this non-binding resolution. And I presume that uh, these voices are coming out of Congress, perhaps as a result of APAC uh, lobbying members of Congress to um, uh, pressure the Bush administration. It seems contradictory because we expected um, that when the Congress fell under the control of the Democrats, uh, that uh, there would be some shift. In fact, there was no shift in, in Iraq uh, war policy. But we would have expected that the Democrats would have a somewhat softer position to that of the Bush administration with regard to Iran. But we see that that's simply not happening. And I, I think that, in fact, the opposition to this war is coming from within the U.S. armed forces rather than from, from the civilian institutions. It's uh, ironic. When you actually look at history you realize that wars are always decided by civilians. Uh, so in this particular case, the war is being decided by, well, it's being decided by the oil companies, the so-called defense contractors, which produce these harmless weapons of mass destruction by, the, of course, the banks and financial institutions, uh, which float the U.S. debt and which have an interest in building up a big public debt, uh, which is used to finance the war effort, and so on, so that these people are behind, and they call the shots. And Congress is then responding to the Israeli lobby. And the Israeli lobby, in a sense, is serving the interests of the oil companies and, and Wall Street and so on. It's not serving the interests of Israel.
in any meaningful way. And I don't think that uh, the United States, well, the United States may come up with some power-sharing arrangement with Israel in the Middle East, but essentially Israel is used as a, as a sitting duck. Um, it's, a, it's a regional military power which is used to do the dirty work on behalf of the Anglo-American alliance. Uh, I'm not suggesting that Israel doesn't have its own strategic interest in the region. It certainly does. But I, I don't view Israel as playing a dominant uh, role in the formulation of U.S. foreign policy, as some people have suggested, and that they're twisting the arm of the administration and so on to have a, a more proactive role of the United States in the Middle East. The United States is in the Middle East because the United States wants to control 60% of the world's oil and gas reserves, which is 30 times those of the United States. The United States has less than 2% of global uh, oil and gas reserves, and the Middle East has something of the order. That region, Middle East, Central Asia, has something of the order of 60% of global oil and gas reserves. And Muslim countries as a whole have something like 70 to 75% of global oil and gas reserves. Hence, the demonization of Muslims, who are the inhabitants of the countries where the oil happens to be, so that the oil lies predominantly in Muslim lands, and consequently you demonize collectively the inhabitants of, of these countries. If the oil were in the hands of Buddhists, well, you would demonize the Buddhists. That is the nature of this war. It is still a war of conquest. It's profit-driven, but it, it is profit-driven in the sense that you don't want other competing capitalist countries or capitalist interests such as uh, Russia, China, Japan, or, or even the European Union, despite the fact that they're allies, you don't want them to play a significant role in that region. They can come in as junior partners at a later stage, but the United States want, wants to make sure that the European and Japanese and Chinese and Russian oil companies, which are present there and have bilateral ties with Iran, that these companies will eventually be neutralized. So that the war is there also to keep the other people out. It's to make sure that these competing powers are kept out of the Middle East and uh, are prevented from exerting a major role, uh, strategic, geopolitical, or economic, in relation to, to countries like Iran, or even, for that matter, Saudi Arabia. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, Iran, all-out war or economic conquest. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Speaking of oil, does Iran plan on pricing its oil in a currency other than the dollar? Well, that issue has been raised on a number of occasions. The fact that that Iran was um, planning to launch an energy market which would be denominated in euros rather than in in U.S. dollars. I think there's several issues involved. Uh, the fact of actually denominating the oil transaction in euros rather than U.S. dollars doesn't really change anything, uh, what changes is whether the oil 
producing and trading countries use the euro as a reserve currency, and whether they start uh, moving out of U.S. dollars, U.S. dollar reserves into euro. That is the crucial question, whether they actually quote the barrel of oil at $140 a barrel U.S. or whatever it happens to be in euros, uh, 95 euros, okay? So whether we quote it in euros or whether we quote it in U.S. dollars is not the substantive issue. The question is whether you are using dollars as a currency reserve by the central banks of, of these various countries or whether you simply abandon uh, U.S. reserves and dollar-denominated debts, which are held in large quantities by an, a large number of countries. Uh, so wh- what I'm saying is that the initiative, the initiative is not strictly to move out of the dollar as far as denominating the transaction. The, the initiative is actually to move out of U.S. dollars as an international trading currency so that you wouldn't make reserves. Uh, you wouldn't uh, use that currency. You'd be using the euro, and you wouldn't be stocking it, and you wouldn't be buying U.S.-denominated uh, treasury bills and so on. Uh, that's the way I interpret the, this, uh, this measure, which has been discussed and debated uh, for quite some time, but it hasn't really happened uh, it hasn't been implemented. No, it hasn't been implemented. And then I guess what you're saying is that it, it, it's, it doesn't really matter too much uh, what kind of currency then that uh, the oil is purchased in. It's, it depends upon what the global reserve currency is, I guess. Well, that, that, that's it. But it also depends whether Iran, uh, Iran as a country and the oil-producing countries, do they continue to stash away U.S. dollars in, in various accounts that they hold? If Saudi Arabia, which holds uh, billions of dollars of U.S.-denominated uh, financial instruments, uh, decides to shift into the euro, then that signifies a major departure. But whether if Saudi Arabia starts selling its oil in euros, which it, it, it does in any event, it doesn't really make any difference. It's the same oil whether it's expressed in dollars or in Canadian dollars or euros or, or Swiss francs, that's not the issue. The issue is what do you do with the money in relation to your own banking system? Do you use it as a, as a, as a reserve? Do you then use the, the earnings that accrue in dollars to, to invest in uh, treasury bills or, or reinvest in U.S. companies or whatever, you see. And that's very important from the point of view of the functions of central banking and particularly the Federal Reserve, which, which has this ability to expand credit just by printing money, but, well, money expansion, not necessarily just not cash, because we say printing money, but in fact it's much more complex than that. It's the expansion of the money supply. And, uh, and they can do that because people around the world are holding dollars. And now that, the question is, uh, with the collapse of the dollar, which is tied into to the difficulties which the United States is facing in, in, uh, in the Middle East, but also domestically, with the collapse of the U.S. dollar, is the dollar still a viable international currency? That's another major question.
Right, and and along with that is is there any other currency uh, that could replace it? And I guess my understanding is at the present time there there really isn't one. Well, there's a there's discussion of having what what is called the Amero, which is the which would be a unified currency between the United States, um, Canada, and Mexico, and which would then replace the the U.S. dollar. And in fact, there there is a, an agenda in that regard that that even U.S. financial institutions are, in fact, letting the dollar fall deliberately, and in fact, they're speculating against their own currency, uh, with a view uh, to uh, possibly introduce a new currency at some later date, which would be called the Amero, and which would uh, be a, a North American dollar, uh, but which, which could be introduced uh, separately from the dollar itself. Well, is, why would they be speculating against their own dollar? Well, for the same reason as everybody else. Uh, the, the, the thing is that uh, you, you can make money by speculating against uh, a currency. It's, it's called short selling. The, the, that's what was done during the Asian crisis where we saw the collapse of the Thai baht and the Korean won. And uh, so if you short sell your own currency, you can then buy it back. Uh, at a much lower price subsequently when it loses value, and then you can push it up again, you see, so that these large financial institutions have the ability of, of moving currencies in different directions. Now, they, uh, there is a downward movement of the dollar, which they, they're fully aware of. They're not preventing that downward movement through any kind of, of monetary intervention. They're letting it happen and in fact, all the major Wall Street uh, financial institutions have joined the bandwagon because for them, there's money to be made when the dollar falls. Right, I see what you mean, and of then course. there's another a very important aspect is that the, that the billions and trillions of U.S. dollar-denominated debt, which are, which are floating all over the world, particularly the Chinese and the Japanese, well, the value, the real value of those dollar-denominated uh, debts has collapsed, okay, in relation to all other currencies. So anybody who has U.S. dollar-denominated uh, debts in, in uh, China uh, or in Japan, these debts are in a declining currency. So in their own currency, of course, they're losing out. And so that U.S. creditors have an interest U.S. financial institutions, the U.S. Federal Reserve, have an interest in letting the currency fall because all the money which is owed to them uh, will lose value when the dollar collapses in real terms and in relation to all other currencies. So that what do they do? They move into euros. Uh, they let the dollar collapse. Uh, people who cash in on their dollar-denominated debts will get a much lower value for in, in whatever their own currencies happen to be, in relation to a devalued U.S. dollar. In other words, the U.S. financial institutions can then shift back into, buy back U.S. dollars uh, once the dollar has fallen. So all this is part of a, of a global process of manipulation. It's, um, to some extent, is also connected to the war, because the the war is part of a profit-driven agenda. The massive uh, increase 
in defense spending, which we have observed in recent years, requires an expansion of government spending and of the public debt, which is beyond anything which we've experienced uh, in previous uh, administrations. Uh, certainly in the post-Cold War era, if we're thinking of the post-Cold War era, uh, this is a massive increase in defense expenditures. We're talking about $1 trillion now. Officially, it's, it's less, but uh, when you add in all the various um, expenses connected with the war in Iraq uh, and so on and so forth, you get to more than $1 trillion uh, U.S. dollars allocated strictly to defense and the financing of, of the war. I'm speaking with author and professor of economics Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show Iran, all out war or economic conquest. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In your article, uh, you say that the largest of foreign investors in Iran are China and Russia. Uh, which country does the U.S. consider a bigger threat, Russia or China? I think the U.S. considers Russia as the bigger threat, uh, because Russia, first of all, from the military standpoint, is much more advanced as a military power, and also because Russia is also uh, a country which has tremendous resources of, of energy, petroleum, and natural gas. And historically, Russia was the uh, opponent during the Cold War. Uh, China today, in the post-Mao era, is is essentially an industrial colony of the West. Uh, I'm suggesting that, in effect, that the Chinese economy, with its uh, trade-oriented perspective of producing cheap labor, manufactured goods for the world market, and the United States in particular, puts it in a very subordinate position. China is really an industrial colony. Uh, virtually everything we, we consume is made in China. Why is it made in China? Because wages in China at a dollar a day or two dollars a day, in fact, they don't exceed three dollars a day in, in the manufacturing industry. And so, uh, so that you have a relocation of uh, manufacturing to China through outsourcing and a lot of trade between China and the United States, which explains, in fact, the trade deficit with China. That trade deficit with China is conducive to a transfer of wealth from China to to the United States. It's obvious. The the United States buys a lot more from China than it sells to China. But China, in turn, is is supplying uh, every single commodity uh, which we buy in in Walmart. And so... um, in that regard, I think the role of China in the world market has to be understood. China is, is subordinate. It also accepted, when it joined the World Trade Organization back in 2001, it accepted very stringent conditions that allowed U.S. and Western banks to enter into its banking market, to take over even domestic banking, which many other countries don't allow. I mean, Canada doesn't, doesn't open its doors to U.S. banks. Okay, we have a very stringent um, regulations on, on the entry of foreign banks into the domestic credit market. But China said, oh, yes, within five years we open up. And so that, in fact, 
there's tremendous inroads into the Chinese economy and the Chinese financial system by Western companies. And uh, I would say that both Russia and China have certain features of being colonies of the West. Okay? We, we mustn't forget uh, the, the devastating uh, macroeconomic reforms which were implemented in Russia in the early 90s with the support of the IMF, which led to the impoverishment of the Russian people virtually overnight, and, and that was applied in all the other former Soviet republics. Uh, it was a neoliberal agenda. It was free market reforms. It was privatization. But at the same time, there were also very significant inroads of Western capital into Russia at that time, and, and it has continued since then. But, but if we look at these countries uh, from a broader perspective, not strictly their, their economic role, they, of course, they are competing military powers, both of them. Um, and they collaborate together. That's very important. Russia and China uh, are tied together in a, in a military agreement, which is called the, the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization, the SCO. It's, well, it it's presented as being an economic entity, but it's not. It's a military alliance, and uh, it's a military alliance which includes a number of other countries, mainly former Soviet republics, which are part of this, uh, of this military alliance. Uh, both of these countries, Russia and China, have military cooperation agreements with, uh, with uh, Tehran, and in fact, also Russia is selling military technology to China. Uh, in fact, Russian technology was used to modernize the Chinese um, Navy in the Taiwan Straits, starting in 1999, when uh, uh, where there were threats um, by Taiwan, but also threats by the United States directed against China. China is, in fact, surrounded by U.S. military bases. We have to understand that. Uh, and Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, was also directed against China because Afghanistan has a, has a border with China on its western frontier. And when these, this military presence was established in Afghanistan, it means that there's also a military presence which is right on China's western frontier. Afghanistan is very strategic. It's a hub in, in Central Asia. It borders onto the former Soviet Union, China, Pakistan, Iran. It, it's a land bridge uh, for, the, for the oil pipelines from the Caspian Sea Basin to the Mediterranean. And so that, in effect, the control over Afghanistan is not strictly to establish uh, a presence in the region. It's also to establish a military presence in areas which are in contiguous uh, areas which border onto, onto Russia. Well, Russia doesn't have a direct border with Afghanistan, but, uh, but uh, there are other former Soviet republics that border onto Afghanistan, and then there's China. So it's a very, very key uh, country for, from the point of view of, of the United States. Israeli officials have publicly said that an attack on Iran is inevitable. And people like former German uh, Foreign Minister Joshka Fischer have said Israel will attack before Bush is out of office. And, of course, an Israeli attack would 
you know, be a thinly disguised U.S. attack. Do you agree that the attack is now inevitable? I I don't want to make predictions on 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 this particular question because it's very very complex, and uh, I think that anything is possible at this stage. If a war is declared on Iran, it would certainly not be based on any kind of rational evaluation of causes and consequences. But we have to understand that the decision could be made. It would be made at the level of the presidency and the vice presidency, most probably the vice presidency, and then it would go downwards. And when you have a command structure, particularly a military command structure, we know very well that these people obey orders. So the military high command is not going to start debating, oh, well, we think that you're wrong in that, etc. They've already said that. But when the order is given, they will obey the orders. So we cannot exclude the possibility that this war could take place, which would put us into a World War III scenario. There's no question about that, because it would be escalation of a much broader region, and then it could even go beyond the region. You could have the intervention of Russia, China, and so on. But on the other hand, there are many other factors which go against this particular scenario. In other words, the fact that that Iran has certain powers of deterrence. It has the capability to, to counterattack it has significant uh, conventional forces which could run over U.S. troops in Iraq. So um, I think that those, those in particular are factors which sway uh, in the balance. Uh, at the level of international diplomacy, China, Russia against this war, but contrary to what happened prior to the war in Iraq, there's very little countervailing opinion within within the so-called international community uh, you know uh, US allies are are behind Washington this time France and Germany are supportive of the US military agenda under the presidency of Nicolas Sarkozy in France and Angela Merkel the German chancellor these new governments now are uh, supportive of of the US military adventure and then if we look at the anti-war movement around the world, in the United States, in Western Europe, I would say the anti-war movement is, is not really addressing the issue of Iran uh, in any meaningful way, not even in terms of street rallies, uh, uh, let alone even discussing and debating what it might imply. Okay? So the dynamics today, uh, if we look at political forces, anti-war movement, and so on, certainly favor much more uh, military agenda against uh, Iran than what existed in the months prior to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, and I think that uh, what is putting this war on hold is the fact that Iran is not Iraq, that Iran is a much larger country. It has 60-plus million people. It has advanced military capabilities. It has a lot of oil, a lot of financial resources. It has the support of China and Russia. It has military cooperation agreements. And it has been preparing its defense for quite a number of years. And that, I think, is the single element which is preventing this war from occurring. If, if Iran had been a sitting duck without these capabilities, they would have invaded it a long time ago. 
Michelle, this recent vote in Congress on the FISA bill, the uh, spying, do you see a relationship between this, uh, uh, this growing police state here and the war agenda? Well, it certainly is. I, I, I would quote Julius Caesar, who said, you, can't, you cannot build an empire with a republic. <laughs> so, yes, this is the end of the republic. It's the end of the republic. And, uh, and the reason why you can't build an empire with a republic is that within a republic, there, there's certain freedom of expression uh, and dissent, and where citizens can actually say, no, we, we disagree with our leaders, and so on and so forth. Uh, the police state is, is being implemented with a view to reinforcing the military agenda. It's not the only objective, but what it does is that it shuns any kind of anti-war perspective within the United States. It also shuns any kind of protest movement by radical groups which may disagree with, with the economic uh, agenda, which has led to the impoverishment of millions of people across America, okay? and which is also in itself a consequence of the, of the war. Uh, and I recall just a, a few years ago when they had these anti-terrorist drills under what was called uh, top-off. It was the top-off um, uh, anti-terrorist um, exercises in the United States. Top-off stands for top officials. And, and so they would simulate a terrorist attack and so on. And what do you do? And in fact, they had already said, uh, that was a few years back, that there were several categories of, of internal enemies and I quote, they said, of course, the Islamic terrorists that are going to attack us from, from somewhere, and there you need Northern Command to defend uh, with sophisticated um, aerial systems and so on, and interception, as if Osama would be flying in on a missile. But then you had, you had several other categories of internal enemies, uh, which were the disgruntled employees, I'm quoting, the disgruntled employees, which suggests that these were people who are being laid off or whose, uh, whose, whose uh, social benefits or wages have, have been depressed uh, as a result of the economic crisis. And the, and the third category are radical groups, which would no doubt include the anti-war activists, so that, in effect, these police state measures, including the spy bill, which provides immunity to the telecom companies, to implement uh, secret domestic surveillance programs, which has now been, been signed into law by George W. Bush, well, those, those procedures are obviously consistent uh, with, uh, with the military agenda. You need to galvanize people into supporting the war, uh, going after bin Laden. You might even need a second 9-11 to, to, uh, to convince people that this is the right course. And Dick Cheney has been talking about the second 9-11 for quite a number of years. And, and then you have, to, uh, you, you have to create conditions which, which favor the, the enactment of martial law. I would suspect that if there is a major military operation directed against Iran, that that things would change dramatically within the United States. The internal domestic uh, uh, security uh, law enforcement uh, framework would change dramatically in the case of a major 
war on Iran. Perhaps not immediately, but eventually, uh, because I would also suspect that a lot of people uh, across America and around the world would be opposed to the extension of the war into, into new frontiers, which is what the Bush administration is planning. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on your program. My best wishes to everybody in California. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been Iran, All-Out War or Economic Conquest. Michel Chosodovsky is professor of economics at the University of Ottawa and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research webpage at www.globalresearch.ca publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. Today we focused on his most recent article, Iran, War or Privatization, All-Out War or Economic Conquest. The Center for Research and Globalization also hosts a weekly Internet radio program, the Global Research News Hour, on the Republic Broadcasting Network. The program airs Mondays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time. All shows are archived at www.republicbroadcasting.org. Today's program was produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. Release. You dig me?